0: Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we wanna tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma. I'm a director at Softway, a company that helps businesses connect with their people to build resilience through culture building products, leadership development, and technology. Today, I'm joined by our president and CEO, Mohamed Anwar. Hey, Mo. How's it going?
1: Hello, everyone.
0: And Mo, I'm excited because today we are diving into part two of a series that we began a while back. In part one, uh, we started the Humanizing Initiative series, the Love as a Humanizing Initiative series, which was an amazing conversation that we had where we started unpacking this passion that we share between Softway and the group at humanizing initiative and you know we were just diving into that there's a better way to do business right and to lead teams to work together is an awesome conversation so i've been really looking forward to this follow-up here and i'm excited to have another opportunity to chat with this group so without further ado i'd like to welcome back the four co-founders of the humanizing initiative dr shai Kilji, jason smith mia amado Caliendo, and zoe king and uh, rather than having all four of you just be like oh hi and just like blurt into the microphone i thought i'd just insert some icebreakers so you each, each get a chance mm-hmm. to um to get let everyone get to know you and um mohammed i'm going to start with you though because that you know there there are guests and we should be gracious so go for it <laughs> i have not read these i'm going to open up the envelope uh, figuratively <laughs> mo what are you most looking forward to over the holidays
1: sleep I want to sleep
0: <laughs>
1: yeah Fair it's uh, it's 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 something I love doing um, I just have to make sure that you know my kids though they wake up at the same time every day no matter mm. when DST kicks in or not or weekend or not so that's the only thing I gotta navigate but otherwise I'm looking for sleep <laughs> I feel that man
0: all right we're moving over to Shaista are you ready
2: I am ready. And I love sleep too. And when you have little <laughs> kids, it's very hard. I hear you more completely. Every yes. morning, 5.30 in the morning. I don't know how much I hear you. Go. <laughs> okay, and
3: that's last
2: nice night, last night I finished at 9 p.m. too. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I would say downtime, uh, you know, sleep, some downtime. Uh, I am so looking forward to working on some papers, uh, which have been sitting on my desk for some time. Uh, Since the semester is coming to an end, uh, I'll be finished with grading. I'll have time, no meetings. I'll be able to focus on some writing. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: Awesome.
0: That's great. But as a bonus for the listeners, I actually have a question prepared for you that's different. So I'm gonna ask (laughs) you anyway,
4: because
0: I actually wanna know the answer to this. What is the best advice you've ever been given?
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah. You know, I think about uh, when you ask me this question, somehow I go back to my parents and the best advice that I was given, which has stuck with me and which is very hard at times is follow your heart Hmm. uh, and live your life um according to some principles and everyone chooses those principles themselves but of of course they're based on certain values that we have or we grow up with um i would say that's um an advice that has stuck with me
0: nice thank you for sharing that jason what show have you binged recently
4: oh boy Um, What have One we month. binged? Oh well, uh, so not, not not binged necessarily, uh, but The Mandalorian. Oh my gosh, that is like the best show on television for for my money these days. And I understand that tonight's episode or the uh, is is like really great. So I'm looking forward to to watching that um, after after this. Actually,
0: awesome, uh, Mia. What has been your favorite quarantine purchase?
2: Thank you, many Mia.
3: There are a few. I'm not gonna lie. Ah, uh, such a good one. Honestly, I bought a um, I bought new dishes at a thrift store, and I love them more every day. They're made in Bulgaria. I saw them mm. months ago, and I couldn't stop thinking about them. And I called the store. It's a small store, and like South Miami. And I called them and they said, yeah, we still have them. they have been there for like, I don't know, at least six months was the time in between when I saw them. And every time I eat it, I not only do I love food, obviously, but I love the dishes too. Awesome. Yeah.
0: And uh, Zoe, what is the hardest part about working virtually for you?
5: Oh, I feel like I'm getting into the groove of it but I still miss being able to pop my head into someone's cubicle and ask a quick question. I feel like now we have like instant messenger, but I just kind of miss that mm-hmm. water cooler, going into the break room, getting a coffee, wasting 30 minutes, <laughs> so definitely distracting coworkers, but also just kind of missing that, that in-person interaction for sure.
0: I totally agree. 100%. So thank you all for your icebreakers and I want to dive in, and I'll open us with my own personal kind of perspective. I remember when first meeting all of you at the Humanizing Initiative, uh, when we first had our initial conversations. Something that got me really excited is that you you kept all of you kept using the word unlearning um, in various contexts, and that's like one of my favorite words in the world. Uh, Alvin Toffler has a quote: "The illiterate of the twenty first century will not be those who cannot read and write." but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. And that's something that at Softway, that quote is like, I mean, if we had a wall right now, it'd probably be up on the wall. Cause literally that's what everything we've been trying to achieve in 2020 for sure. And so the theme of this, this episode in this series is going to be just on the first part of that learning. We wanna break this up cause there's a lot to talk about. We'll talk about unlearning and relearning later, but when it comes to learning, we, we have a very unique kind of perspective on it. We're talking about workplace culture, we're talking about behaviors, we're talking about love and humanizing. So when we talk about learning, we're actually talking about what have we learned? Because everyone's been learning. I don't think learning is a, the, the hard part for the world right now. We've learned many things. We have many habits built through what we've learned in work, through our interactions. We've all gotten to where we are um, doing the things that we already know so today it's it's a bit of a conversation around that problem statement like we've been uh, we started broaching this topic last uh last episode in this series and i really want to start breaking it down and i want to start with you uh on your perspective of the problem statement can you summarize the problem statement for us what have we what have what have people learned that's wrong
2: such a good question. Um, should I go on for 30 minutes, 40 minutes?
0: <laughs> go for it. Go for it. Uh, uh,
2: I think I'm just going to present a very macro picture, and uh, what my um, friends here can do is uh, sort of expand on that. Um, you talked about deconstructing, right? And you talked about uh, problem statement, right? So, what I want to do from a very macro perspective is um, uh, deconstruct the problem, right? Uh, uh, Because oftentimes what we consider to be the problem is actually not the problem. We need to deconstruct it so that we we can look at the underlying causes. Uh, And we need to identify those underlying causes so that we can address those causes in order to create or construct solutions. Um, Of course, we can look at the problem of business. This is how I'm gonna identify it in so many different ways. Uh, When I talk about it, obviously I take a very particular perspective. Um, so I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the underlying uh, causes, or underlying issue, I believe it's the dominant narrative that we have in organizations and the dominant narrative that we use in order to develop our leaders. Uh, and what is that uh, narrative? Um, from my perspective, it's about um, emphasis on rationality. Um, it's uh, making an assumption that system structures are very objective in nature, and we need to objectify in terms of quantifying items, right? And that we we need conformity. Um, um, So what has it ended up, um, uh, what has it resulted in is control and compliance within organizations. Um, and I'm gonna take that even uh, backwards, right? We, we're, uh, we're thinking in terms of business, but businesses are part of the society, right? And uh, you know somehow we've come to believe or we've convinced ourselves as leaders um, that um, uh, business the purpose of business is to serve shareholders and it's not to serve the society. So we've removed the society from the business. And we've tried to create these systems, cultures, structures that are very objective. We think are very objective. We think are very, very rational. And the problem with that approach is that whose rationality are we talking about? As human beings, we have this tremendous ability to rationalize anything that we want to rationalize, right? So um, we've ended up in a place um, uh, that, you, we, with an illusion that organizations are like machines and we need to maximize efficiency and we need to maximize results. Um, and what has, um, you know, it has really left, it, left us in a very um, sort of um, precarious situation because we have forgotten what it is like to understand human beings and what, is, what it is like to understand humanity as well. Um, So I'm going to sort of stop here, uh, uh, but, you know, uh, going back to the problem statement, redefining it in terms of the balance, right? We need to maintain a balance in terms of, um, uh, you know, if there's purpose, uh, if there's profit, there's also purpose, right? If there's rationality, there's also foolishness. Um, If there is inclusion, Uh, There's also control. If there's control, there's also inclusion. So really, we need to learn to balance different approaches in order to um, understand the complexity of human experience and in order to also centralize the human experience in our understanding of organizations, in our understanding of business as well. And we need to understand that organizations exist within the society their purpose is to serve the society as well. Profits are important. I'm not saying they're not important, but also this idea of stakeholder, this idea of um, existing so that you serve the society is very important as well.
3: Yeah, and Jeff, I'd love to just add on that because I don't know how far we will go back. And I know we we all have some opinions about how far to go back, but even if we we were just go back a couple decades this comes from, you know, Milton Friedman in the 80s won a Nobel Prize in economics, and it was really about how shareholder value is really the only thing that you need to focus on. And that's really a part of how we've created what success looks like in organizations.
0: Was there, was, was there a time before the 80s then that... that- <laughs> Th- that this was not an issue. Like, I'm curious, is, is this, th- is this how the system was designed from the get-go? Is there is this a slow yeah. change to where we are today?
2: No, I think this is a, a, from my perspective, I think this is how we've structured our economies. If you go back to economics as a discipline, who said that uh, economies um, are all about efficiency and production. Economies are made by people. Economies are also composed of cultures Economies are also composed of human motivation. And in the process of really uh, establishing economics as a discipline, which many economists are talking about now, we have completely forgotten um, the other side of this equation, the other side um, of this very, very important um, dilemma that we're faced with in societies these days. And, uh, you know, just to finish my thought, you know, as we... Um, as, you know, leadership scholars and management scholars and organizational scholars or practitioners, uh, you know, when we started working on our discipline or the growth of our discipline, we started mimicking what was happening in economics. We borrowed heavily from economics and consequently we started developing leaders or focused so much on efficiency, focused so much on results, focus so much on shareholders and we completely forgot that we also have um. Uh, Um, responsibility towards our stakeholders, towards the environment, Um, we ended up creating systems um, that are only serving a few, are not serving everyone within the society.
0: Mm. Well said. Zoe, uh, I'm going (laughs) to pretty much pose the same question to you, but I actually just, I want your take on it specifically from the angle of like, how would you pose what's wrong with what we have learned as a society, what is, what, what is, like, can you define that in your perspective?
5: Yeah. And I'm going to borrow a quote from um, Shaniqua Golding. She wrote a a medium story kind of surrounding um, the uh, demonstrations around George Floyd's death. And she had this quote and it has stuck with me ever since. And she said, when did we decide that professionalism um, equated to a divorce from our humanity? And I think when we look at the way that we have done business, the way that we have constructed organizations, the way that we evaluate performance. I think uh, kind of pulling back on what Dr. Kilty was talking about, we focus so much on that rationality and we focus so much and we reward um, you know, some of those leadership behaviors um, that don't really take into account our full humanity. And I think you know, what we've done is we've taken that human piece out of the workplace. And in doing that, I, I think that that's what we're seeing with, with employee burnout. Um, this really awesome organization, uh, WorkHuman, did a work study uh, survey and they surveyed um, over 2,100 employees and they found that over 54% of them uh, reported having burnout at some point over their career. Uh, and that was taken just last year. So I can't even imagine what those figures are going to look like this year. And I think a lot of that comes from um, sort of this performance of, uh, you know, showing up to work and not necessarily, um, you know, being able to show up as your full human self. And I think that, you know, we could look back at, uh, you know, performance evaluation and, you know, what are those leadership behaviors that we applaud, um, like Dr. Gilge said, rationality, um, strength. But what are those kind of softer skills, emotional intelligence? How do we start to build those into our systems so that people feel like they can kind of show up to work and, and maybe they aren't strong that day? You know, maybe they they need to bring their humanity, maybe they're a caregiver and they they need to bring that self, that side of themselves to work that day. So I think it's you know, us kind of needing to really reckon with um how we have evaluated strong leaders and how we have evaluated success and where we have not incorporated, you know, the full spectrum of humanity, kind of within that conversation.
1: I think to add to the burnout um, situation that you mentioned, I think what's happening in the corporate workplace today is also moral injury people are not just getting burnt out by doing the same amount of same type of work or long hours of work, but people are facing moral injury. When you see your coworkers being laid off while the uh, C-suite is getting rewarded bonuses, the same time, you know, you're, you're laying off thousands of people and you're witnessing all of this, you're seeing this, and then you're seeing issues in the healthcare uh, vertical where practitioners in the healthcare field are having to witness people dying with COVID, for example, and they know that uh, the situation that has led to this is a failure on the part of you know, how we've handled those prices or corporate uh, greed at times has, leads to operating the way you do, and it leads to issues. I think humans are faced with moral injury in the workplace that leads to almost the same result as burnout, but different to where they get disconnected. They don't want to work anymore or change their profession or leave those organizations because they are just injured from the morality or the lack of it that they're witnessing.
2: And I wanna dispel a myth here, right? The (laughs) distinction we have created between the hard and the soft. The hard is what's easy to obtain because it's objective. You know, that's an assumption we've made. And then soft is something we can dismiss because we don't think it's important. That's the kind of culture or those are the systems that we operate in. But, you know, if you just uh, sort of shift your lens and think about human motivation, human experience, happiness, well-being, dignity, this is real hard work. So if you shift your lens, I don't think these are soft measures the way they are expected to be. I think this list requires an immense amount of hard work every single day. For, for a leader who wants to be responsible, a leader who cares about morals, ethics, ha- lives by certain principles, to live by those principles on a daily basis in an environment that's not conducive to those principles, I would say... <laughs> I would say it's real hard work. So you know, I would really urge all of us to uh, shift our lens and not create this distinction between hard and soft measures, as we've always done. Uh, as w- when we think about you know um, looking at measures and how how should we um, how should we uh, measure the success of an organization? How should we measure the success of a leader?
4: You know, I think to that to that point, <clears throat> Dr. Kilgy, um I think about something like empathy and about like real listening to somebody. And like, I think about how much courage it takes to sit in front of somebody who you vehemently disagree with and listen, then listen to them empathetically. Um, One of my, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about other podcasts on this podcast, but one of my favorite podcasts um, is by Alan Alda. It's called clear and vivid. And he has a lovely quote about empathy. Uh, And it is, um, it is that if if that if you're really listening to somebody, you're opening yourself up to being changed by them, and even coming out of my mouth, I have a little bit of a reaction to that because there's something I'm holding on to about being right or about being strong or about being whatever. But like the soft skills to me are the are the hardest skills and take the most courage to bring out into the workplace.
0: Mo, I feel like we we at soft, we have. <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know where to begin with that exact struggle of, um, you know, coming into 2020, we knew we wanted to make a big change even before um, all of the pandemic situation. But then the pandemic forced our hand and we knew we wanted to take this chance to really push hard on all the things we believe in, really have a revamp. And man, it's been a rewarding year, but it has been hard to do the soft Things. It's been hard to really live um, everything we, 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 because we're so, because we're so human, right? Yes. And, and, you know, you can, you can, you know, bust your ass for two weeks trying to do everything right and you'll have one person take something the wrong way and consider your intents to be bad and all these things. And you're, you're sitting here wondering why, why. And this is where that, this is where that problem statement comes back in where i feel like i have learned somehow through somewhere in my career that wouldn't it just be easier to just forget all that and just get the work done and just um you know why do i have to jump through these hoops to make people happy when when really this is a job this is like these types of thoughts if i'm if I'm honest will pop up because it's the easier way out like I want to be done with the problem and that is the way out um sorry someone else think um I think when it comes to I think something that everybody kind of touched on was this work self versus um I guess personal life self division which I think everyone can relate to that being I mean some people make that, I've heard people give that advice as like sage advice, like, Hey, you know, the best advice I can give you is don't bring your personal life to work. And like, that's like, like people will start a new job. And that's the first thing their boss tells them that's the best advice they can give. And that's so backwards to me. Um, Jason, I, I guess I'd like your, I I'd actually like your, your take on what, where's that coming, like we're talking about learning, right? What's that learned from? Like, why are we like
4: that? Well, Jeff, I, I go back to your comment just a minute ago. It's was like, wouldn't it be nice if we could just get the job done and not have to worry about all these feelings and all of this like messiness that, that people bring with them. And, and the answer to that is to my end, my answer to it is yes, that would be great. I I think if, you know, and I think that that kind of, of thinking and, and and I, I think it's it's easy, anybody who's been on a team, who's ran a team, can relate to that. Um, I, I think it's probably also the kind of thinking that underpins Milton Friedman's, all you gotta worry about is profits statement. It's like, wow, that's incredibly freeing. It, it also does not reflect the complexity with, with you know, of, of this existence and the, the, the centrality of, of humans to it. Um, to your point about like, you know, bringing your, bringing your whole self into the workplace, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about this because we're having this conversation. Um, I I feel like we're in a process of maturation and integration where, where for a long time, I think we, we, we encourage people not to bring their personal lives into work. And if you've got somebody that's standing on an assembly line and, and are pulling widgets off of it, well, you could probably do that without, you know and think about whatever is bothering you from home but if i'm at work and i'm you're expecting me to be creative or solve complex problems there's a very different type of things that is that is happening there and and i think that you know we we have to be able to to take to create an atmosphere where people feel supported enough to be able to talk through these things and bring them into the workplace but and here's the other thing the only thing I can bring into work is my whole self. I, as far as I can tell, I have never been able to check anything at the door. Nobody's ever offered me a coat closet or something where I can stow my junk. <laughs> so <laughs> let's create some systems that actually account for it.
0: That's such a good point. I love the way you put that.
2: What? Yeah, so, um,
0: oh, go ahead, please.
2: So I was thinking in terms of how, you know, going back to the same um, problem that I was uh, considering earlier on, you know, we have this tendency um, as a society to compartmentalize everything, right? And we have this uh, um, also tendency um, to engage in binary thinking, either or approach, right? Either you can do this or you can do that, right? And I think that's problematic at many levels. But since you asked this question about your whole self and dividing that into professional self and Uh, Personal self. Um, I think it has definitely, um, it's definitely the result of that compartmentalization that we value so much as a society. Um, When we develop these structures, systems, economies, organizations, (laughs) um, we decided, someone someone decided um, that we want people to bring only their professional selves because we don't want to be engaged with that messy stuff, that messy personal stuff. So when you walk in the door, you're going to check your personal self outside and then you're going to walk in with your professional self. And it's become so deeply embedded, so deeply entrenched in our ways of thinking um, uh, that it's very, very difficult for organizations to support your whole self. Um, But I also want to be a devil's advocate here because though I actually wrote a blog on it fairly recently. Um, And I want to be a devil's advocate right now, uh, because if you think about this problem, um, for someone who wants to bring their personal self to an organization whose culture doesn't support that personal self, it's going to be very problematic. Uh, That person is going to meet with a lot of resistance. Um, People, you know, from a diversity, equity, inclusion perspective, uh, when Uh, we bring our personal self to the organization, Uh, we're oftentimes uh, faced with um, biases um, and we're oftentimes judged by others. So even if I wanted to take my personal self to work because it's very hard for me to leave it behind, the organizational culture doesn't support it. Uh, So, whereas this idea of, you know, bringing personal professional self is an important one, and I think that should be the case, but in order for us to get there, we need to change the cultures of the organization where it can be supported.
0: That's so well put, because I feel like when we talk about learning and unlearning, which we'll cover um, it is really talking about that organizational level and that culture level because it's much easier to unlearn in within an individual something that you've that you've built up even though it can be difficult um, the real challenge is is changing that entire environment that is preventing anyone else from learning and relearning in 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 the new way like I think the way you put it there really strikes me as important to understand when it comes to this is that you know, if you have, if you walk into a room, if you're the type of person to leave your personal life at the door somehow, but you walk into a room where everyone is comfortable and sharing and warm and welcoming, and I mean, it it won't take more than you know a day or two to start bringing yourself to work, and that's that's something really magical to kind of imagine. And I think we can all kind of imagine that situation. Unfortunately, many of us have never seen anything close to that when it comes to a professional environment.
1: I have a question for anyone here. Is why is it that the decisions that are made in the corporate workplace today um, so easy to justify layoffs or you know decisions that are focused on profit over people and and such like any insights of what what have we learned through these years of building our economies and our workplaces that has led to this point. Um, because I, I look at it as, especially what's happening now with COVID crisis is, it's a humanitarian need. This couldn't be a better example of when we need more of our humanity, and yet we see organizations, corporations, um, making uh, decisions around laying off people at the site of you know reduced profits even so what what is your take on that? How did we get here? Why are we here? and how do how do we how do people in positions of power make decisions so easily um, at the cost of humans and their jobs?
3: Mohammed, I'm curious. Have you ever listened to the podcast sixteen nineteen? I have not um Nicole Hannah Jones facilitates a an episode about the American economy, and she talks about. Slavery and how part of slavery was getting the most out of your slave Mm -hmm. and how she She sort of fast forwards and talks about an experience that she had one of her first jobs working at in a Telecommunication facility and how just like as a slave you had specific quotas and if you didn't meet those quotas you were Violently beaten so there was an element of fear instilled and when you were and as she was working in a telecommunication facility at a call center she had also a quota. And if you know your quota was sort of based on what your productivity was the prior week. So you didn't want to like exceed that because then you'd be sort of expected to exceed that the next time. And mm-hmm. so I think what has happened and what what is discussed in this podcast, among many other things, that's been that's really interesting, I encourage you to listen to, is we really think about what how can we get the most out of that person. And I think that that is a, a core issue that Addresses the question that you asked, and how are we getting the most out of this person? If we're not getting the most out of this person, then we're going to move move on, right? And I think that you know mass layoffs in a time during a pandemic, there's a lot more complexity that goes into that. And I can't say that that's the you know the sole reason for why those things are happening. I think it's a a lot bigger of a of an issue. But when you think about, as you mentioned, you know CEOs taking bonuses during that time. You think about how when, like, if you go back and you look at slavery and you saw how, you know, all of the slave owners grew incredible wealth from the work that the slaves were doing. And not just the slave owners, but the entire country grew incredible wealth because of cotton. And that all went into a very specific group of people that were able to attain that wealth. And I think that that has perpetuated or you know, sort of evolved as time has gone on into organizations.
1: Interesting.
0: And
2: I would also sort of describe that as the result of these um, if look if you look at organizations as systems, which they are, um, they inherently perpetuate inequities. So this idea of the CEO uh, uh, serving shareholders, um, and your compensation being tied to um, profits or shareholder wealth um, and uh, not really serving the society and not really serving um, the employees or other stakeholders. Uh, it has ended up perpetuating uh, inequities, both inside as well as outside the organization. And then there's this idea of elitism as well, right? Uh, CEOs today probably make 280 times more than an average production worker. 30 years ago, they made probably 100 times more than an average production worker. Um, So I think what we've witnessed um, over particularly, I would say, the past 20 years is an acceleration of um, those inequities um, that we ourselves, um, as individuals, as societies, have have developed, um, have promoted, but now we're at a stage, we look at COVID-19 and we hope that is a wake up call. Um, And I I, I hope that too, Uh, but I don't think COVID-19 is the problem. The problem is the inequities that continue to exist within our systems. What COVID-19 has done is just made us more aware of those inequities.
0: Got it. I I I hear a resonating kind of tone of like when I'm I'm thinking around the terms of what have we learned to do to get to today? Like how have we learned these habits and these these standards that that exist? And I keep thinking of the word fear, because to me it seems that that's the tool that is consistent amongst these examples we're giving. It's the fear of um, it's that fear that's being used as a tool to drive results and outcomes, even if it's not like this fear mongering kind of fear, but more just like, you know, fear of retribution, fear of losing your job, fear of not getting that promotion, fear of, of being judged, all these different fears. Um, it's what makes you like, hate going to work. Like if, you, if someone doesn't want to wake up to go to work, it's because they're afraid of walking that door and what they have to deal with. They're afraid of not being able to deliver and the pressure and all those things that comes from a source of fear. And that that's really standing out to me as one of the key things that have been learned as the right way to do things. And and Mia, when you're giving your example, it's just, it's like, yeah, it's just standing out to me that that fear is there. And it's not so much that That was the right way to do things in the beginning i think it was just the easy way to do things in the beginning like today today we are in a society where as we've already mentioned we're dealing with complex problems creative solutions it's not just cogs on an assembly line that we're just putting together if that person has fear it's not going to change your results and your outcomes in theory so that's that's how the industrial revolution came up with the entire structure of how Companies should be built, right? You have an assembly line of, you know, 100 workers, you pick the very best cog assembler, and you make him or her the boss of all other 99 of them, like that makes sense. But today, we know that leadership is not the best worker, it's a separate skill that leads others through their, you know, um, kind of situations. And yet, we still see evidence that leaders are still brought up that way that leaders are still selected that way. And because they don't have the skills to lead, they only have the tool of fear to then get the results they're looking for. And, and it's just, that's, that's how I picture this, where, how we got here, essentially.
2: Also, I think, what do we reward? What behaviors do we reward? Mm. And how do we reward them? So whatever we reward is going to be promoted and perpetuated. Um, You know, I was uh, in a class yesterday and one of my students gave such a beautiful example. He said, you know, um, the human nature is that if you see someone fall right in front of you, you need, I mean, instinctively, we go up to them and help them out, right? And I don't know how, where we have gone wrong. This is how he expressed himself that we no longer do that. It's all about competition. It's not about collaboration and mohammed as you talked about you know the, that moral sacrifice that we've made why uh, absolutely because of fear but also because we do not reward the right behaviors
0: that's so powerful that, I, <laughs> sorry go ahead
5: no, no no i i think too with that dr hilde i'm thinking about like you know organizations what are the organizations that we recognize and that we herald mm-hmm. um, you know, I think what we recognize as success for a business is profitability. And, you know, I think, you know, innovation here or there, but I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, what is the the company that is making the most money, that is, um, you know, has the um you know the most profit, least amount of overhead. And I, I really I do think I I think a lot about these organizations that are trying to build in sustainability practices and are um you know, diversifying their workforce and are trying to kind of do business the right way. Um, But I still think that we, you know, kind of as a culture are lagging in truly recognizing those organizations. And I I think that there is a um, sacrifice inherent there. I think a lot about Amazon and the fact that, you know, we can order something and depending on what it is, you could get it that day, you could get it in two days. Um, I think we as a culture... Are kind of willing to take that sacrifice of convenience over, you know, maybe some more humanistic practices. And I think that when you talk about recognition, how can we start to change, um, you know, the ways that we consume, the ways that we think about how goods are delivered, uh, the ways that we, um, you know, look at successful businesses. And I, I think that as long as we have, you know, these tech giants where, you know, profit rules all, that will kind of be the model. And if you are doing something differently and you're disrupting the space, you're an anomaly. And it's really hard to, to for those companies to get momentum. So I think a lot about, um, you know, how can we start to really invest and, um, you know, whether it's us as being more conscious consumers, but how can we really start to look at these companies that are transparent about their uh, you know, production, that are transparent about the way that they pay their employees and their um, business structures. Uh, I think it's so important that we start to really value those country, those companies and really start to you know, lift up those companies for their achievements because I think right now um, that dominant kind of profit over people still kind of stands as the, the best practice.
4: You know, I'm I'm reading uh, or listening to uh, a book called uh, "Doing the Most Good" by Peter Singer, um, and uh, he talks about um, you know kind of effective altruism. So, like putting putting you know a portion of your money aside and donating it to causes that, that actually are, are are saving lives, and um, how this one person did a calculation and. Realize that they put this much aside; they could they could save the lives of 100 people from from uh, being um, being killed by malaria by just providing them nets to go over their beds. Um, and and when we think about that, right? Like you, in the example he uses: well, if you could run into a burning building and save 100 people, you would. And yet, there's this dissonance that we we have that allows us to behave differently. Um, and I think you know when we talk about like you know the the big companies out there, it's like profitability. It's like if you take the dissonance away for a second and really see it for what it is, like what a terrible measure of anything um, other than how Mm. much money that company made. I mean, we really should be looking at companies that do the most good that are, are are taking care of the most stakeholders. And Mm. if we flip that, just tweak it a little bit, it changes a lot of the equation that we're talking about.
0: That's really well put. I, I'm still stuck on this concept of reward because it, it's all connected when you have these businesses that are only focused on that objective, their rewards reflect that. And I, and I think of some of the the corporations that come to mind when I think of problematic cultures and I try to identify right now, what is their reward kind of a common thread is that they treat being able to work there as the reward and everything else is a punishment. So you either live up to it, you, you made it. So, and, and to me, that's like the people that I, interact with and see, I see them working in ways only to not be fired
5: Mm. or
0: only, only to not stand out. Nobody is, you know, they might have an idea for an amazing new product or something that could really help people and really improve the business, but they're not going to speak up because if they make noise, if they make waves, they risk losing the reward of just being part of this machine. And I think it's really powerful to think of rewards that way because it, it, it seems problematic in and of itself right now that that it seems like, hey, you know, we want, we're growing, so let's just keep upping salaries because just working here, our salaries are just, you have nothing to complain about. What right do you have to be unhappy when you make this much money? Go home and enjoy it and come back tomorrow and suffer some more. <laughs> so that, that's just what stood out to me from that
4: well there's that fear again you know it's the fear of it's the fear of, of losing your job it's the fear of standing out like it's the fear of that and 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 it and it works to to get people to comply it doesn't work to get people to be exceptional and it certainly undercuts happiness and well-being
2: and that balance that is so important for our well-being, whether it is the balance between professional self and personal self, or it is the balance between living my life for profits, for money, or for purpose, right?
0: Mohammed, I know you're not going to like this, but uh, he, he doesn't like to brag on himself, but I want to brag on him a little bit. I, I'd like you to, could you share just a little bit about what Softway, when the pandemic hit uh, earlier this year, and we, we, you had a decision to make in terms of how to handle that and what to do with our financial situation and the employees. I think you had a really tough decision to make and I was hoping you could just share a little bit about what we ended up doing as an organization. He's already uncomfortable.
1: Uh, I don't know which point you're referring to, so I'll try to see <laughs> where you want me to go, but um, so when we were up with the pandemic, this year we lost uh, 80% of our commitments and projects Mm -hmm. for the rest of the year. I had a staff of almost 200 employees and I had to make a tough decision. What do I do as a business? Do we go forward with layoffs? Do Do I take all the retained earnings out and shut down the business? Um, what's the right thing to do? What's the rational thing to do? And my rational side was, oh, shut down the business, take the <laughs> money that's in the bank and move on and start something else or go go later into in the future when the pandemics over you start over all over again. but at what cost right mm-hmm. to me personally i I'd walk away as a millionaire and or what do I do and so. The right thing to do is obviously to take all the retained earnings and the profits that we had made over the years and put it back into the company and try to sustain all of the people's jobs, and keep them employed, um, and and so forth. So, I, I did have to go through uh, short-term furloughs for about six weeks uh, for our U.S. staff, a portion of our U.S. staff, but. I was then able to sell my personal investment property, uh, put the money back in and get people back from furlough earlier. Uh, but those are all um, tough decisions when fighting rationality versus what's right. But at the end of it, I can tell you, I have no remorse uh, going into it, it was tough. But after a fact, like, I'm like, I'm happy. I I feel like that was the right thing to do. And every business advisor, every other person out there like, what are you doing? My banker is like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, What's wrong with you? But at the end of the day, I couldn't uh, have that moral conscience to let go of people's jobs. And, and especially now, no health can lose their healthcare benefits going into the pandemic with no chance of getting jobs or income and and make that easy decision. I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So uh, those are some of the tough things that uh, as, a, as a business owner I had to come across during this pandemic. I, I bring it up. And again, <laughs> thank
0: you, Mo, for sharing and not just trying to brag on him, but I bring it up for a point because you have to understand that, th- you know, software isn't, you know, we don't have, um, you know, shareholders. We don't have, you know, investors that we have to you know said so like Muhammad essentially you know had control because he had every ability to basically take what was in there and go and do whatever he wanted with it and just say you know close the doors and say you guys figure it out and it's not so much just that moral decision but I compare it to what would be considered correct and like if like said like he mentioned the bankers and the analysts would say what are you doing because most people would reach that point and go, okay, if I keep the business open, do I have a chance, do I have an avenue to come back around and re, regain what I lose during this time? Like, do I have the ability to rebuild stronger and better? I mean, those all sound like sound reasonings and decisions, but Muhammad was never saying those things during that time. He was saying things like, what are these people going to do? And how could I live with myself if if I'm, like, what am I going to do with this money if people are, are struggling or suffering. And I think that decision point is something we've lost. I mean, I'm using extreme situation, but those types of situations happen all the time at smaller mm-hmm. scales when we make business decisions, when we make decisions to hire, fire, layoff, or even just assign projects and all these little smaller decisions, they're all driven by these these, these very seemingly rational decision points and reasonings. And yet, there's always another way to look at it. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm I'm sorry, I'm just really proud of what um, we've been able to do since that. And I actually drive, I really push myself to do what I can to make sure that Muhammad feels like he made the right decision at the time. And, and I think that matters too, right? Thank you.
1: I, I can tell you at the end of the day, I don't think it's misaligned from making profits or being Perfect. successful in serving the purpose. I think it's not an either or. I think there's a way forward, which I'm sure we'll, we'll uncover in our next episode, which is how you can have a balance of uh, serving purpose and serving all stakeholders and still have an opportunity to be a successful business and and make profit and and also serve your stakeholders. I, as, as Shareholders, I mean. So it's just a matter of uh, uncovering that, and that's my that's my belief and philosophy that if we take care of our people, our society, then there's a higher purpose for why a business must exist, and uh, we will find ways to, uh, you know, make profit uh, by doing what is right and not just always what is rational.
2: Muhammad, that's so impressive, and uh, imagine or just consider, not imagine, consider all the sort of goodwill that you've created within your own company as a result of the decision that you made. And a lot of leaders uh, forget that because I've seen leaders during this pandemic laying off employees and saying, well, business is really going rough. It's really not doing well, but not being creative and thinking about other ways in in which they can be creative and find other solutions, right? So um, it's, it's, it's very, very
1: impressive. Well, thank you.
0: So I'd like to round our conversation um, off with kind of a, a, a question to kind of really pull it all together. Cause we all kind of agree that this is the problem statement. We agree that this is what's going on. This is what we've learned. So if it's so clear to us, why is there resistance to this approach? Why is it that, Um, other businesses are unable to embrace this or it hasn't, you know, where are we in this journey of trying to have more realization around this?
4: I, I think this is, this is my opinion. Um, I think it's more complicated. I think it's more complex. I think if we're just worried about shareholders and profits, that's very, it's a simple equation. Um, And I think when we start bringing in, Human well-being, stakeholders, the environment—all um, of a sudden, this like—all of a sudden, the decisions we're making in this boardroom aren't just about what's happening in the building that we're in, but they're about the community, and they're about the you know the nation, and they're about the you know the the broader society, and um, that that is a complication that is necessary and makes things harder, at least initially, to get your head around. I think the good news is, is that long-term, if you if you, if you you move past that either-or thinking and start to, to, to see it that way, I think that there are major benefits for business and for people and for everybody else.
2: I would um, add to that. And I think I said that before as well. I think it's the cultures that we've developed. Our cultures reward certain behavior um, and because we uh, uh, promote certain values. Um, and change, and if you don't demonstrate the behaviors that are expected or rewarded, then you're faced with a lot of resistance. And I think this is what you have experienced um, as a company, and something that we have individually experienced as well in our own organizations, and also in creating this humanizing initiative as well is uh, going against the tide and uh, changing the culture. Uh, because these values are so deeply embedded in our ways of thinking. Um, in order to change the culture, we have to change the values. And in order to change the values, we have to change our mindset as well. Uh, and it's not going to be easy work. Uh, but fortunately, there's so many people like us. We're not alone. In, uh, there are lots of, I think, people are waking up, uh, people are realizing, um That the culture that we have developed or the way we conceptualize and operate our organizations and economies um, is not sustainable. It's not good for human well-being. It's not good for the planet. Um, And it's not good for individual sense of worth as well. Uh, I think uh, people are slowly, gradually waking up to the fact that we need to fix this system.
3: And I think we've just tilted this scale. Like, if we think about sort of the four drives of, you know, humanistic leadership, and you think about the drive to acquire, the drive to defend, which sort of we share with all mammals, all animals, and then the drive to bond and the drive to comprehend. We have tilted so heavy on this drive to acquire. And I think you see these, you know, massive billionaires with so much money that not one person could spend in their entire lifetime and this incredible inequity. And is it a fear that, oh, I have to hold on to this? Or is it, you know, something else like they're holding on to it because they want to be able to protect those that they, you know, love, care, family, you know, whatever it is. But I think that we've tilted this this imbalance to bring it back to that conversation. We've really put such an emphasis on those two things. And as humans, those are really just part of it, right? We can't ignore that. We do have a drive to acquire and defend. But we also really want to understand and we also really want – we're social beings. So that drive to bond is another equally important piece that we need to sort of rebalance. Mm.
5: And Mia, I think this moment really is kind of asking us to reassess the way that we've we've done things. I think that this whole year has brought so much to the fore, and I think what business leaders and I think what businesses are starting to realize is, in such a competitive global marketplace, if we are to be innovative and if you are to you know disrupt spaces and um, kind of you know set your organization apart you need to have that space for your employees to have that creativity and to have that that space to fail. And I think with that comes the irrationality and the messiness of the human experience. But I think as we kind of begin to shift this narrative and people feel like they can kind of show up more fully to work, I think that they're going to be more creative. They're going to be more apt to take risk. And I think that those business returns and I think You know, you'll see it in in product development and, you know, different ways that we're going to have to innovate in this new phase of life that, you know, we're entering into in 2021. I think it's going to be so important that we start to lead with these conversations in order for people to show up fully so that we can really tap into their full potential of creativity and innovation.
0: And I think um, all these closing statements from you guys have been really just pointing at this turning point to start unlearning um, all these things that we've learned, which is the perfect segue because when we next get together, I really want to start unpacking that. I really want to start talking about what is unlearning, what does it look like and maybe getting tactical with that and, and helping people understand what it's going to take to unlearn these things that we just talked about. This has been an amazing conversation. And I think, um, the, the problem has never been more clear to me, um, but now I'm really anxious to talk about what we do about it. And so in the next episode we're gonna unpack and talk about unlearning and relearning um, better ways to do things and what that might look like. So um, thank you so much to the Humanizing Initiative, Zoe, Mia, Shaista, Jason, and Mohammed. thank you for joining as well. Uh, this is an, another amazing conversation. I, I really look forward to the next uh, episode in this series. So thank you all for for joining me today. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: And to the listener, I really appreciate you tuning in as well. Uh, We post new episodes every Tuesday. So if next Tuesday you have something you want to hear about, please let us know. It's software.com slash labs. That's L-A-A-B-S. And if you liked it, please consider leaving a review and subscribe. So with that, I will bid you guys farewell and we will chat soon.